Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, loyal law school professor Jessica Levinson, and today I'm thrilled to say we are joined by Professor Carrie Franklin. Professor Franklin is a professor of law at UCLA, where she writes and teaches in the areas of constitutional law, anti-discrimination law, and legal history. She's currently the faculty director of the Williams Institute, a research institute at UCLA focused on sexual orientation and gender identity law and public policy. She's also the faculty director of the Center on Reproductive Health, Law, and Policy. Welcome, Professor Franklin. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So the first thing I want to talk about is the thing I know you've been talking about for probably three weeks straight now, which is the Dobbs decision. Listeners of our podcast are familiar with the decision, and they know the punchline, which is that the right to obtain an abortion is no longer protected under the federal constitution, and this means it's left to the states. But you're one of the nation's experts. I'd like to delve a little bit deeper and ask you if you could explain for our listeners, what's the rationale behind the opinion? Roe is almost half a century old. All of a sudden, Roe is overturned. What did the majority say here? Yeah. So the majority said that Roe was wrongly decided. And it said Roe was wrongly decided because it applied the wrong test for figuring out what liberties are protected under the Constitution. So the Constitution was amended in 1868 after the Civil War to protect liberty and equality. And the opinion in Dobbs didn't dispute the fact that the word liberty protects certain substantive rights. The, the rub comes in in which rights are protected. So in Roe and a whole number of other decisions over the last 75 years, the court has said, we look back, we start with history, and we ask, what are the kinds of rights that Americans have always believed are protected? But we also incorporate new insights and new understandings over time. So I'll give you an example. Marriage is a right that Americans have long believed was fundamental. It's a really important liberty to have that you get to choose who you want to marry and that's your right. But the court said a couple years ago in the same-sex marriage case, you know, we didn't realize that same-sex couples were being unfairly excluded from that right, and now we do. So that is one of the liberties. It draws on this long-standing understanding throughout history, but it also enlarges it to accommodate new understandings that have evolved over time. That helped to protect contraception. It helped to protect abortion. It helped to protect the right of same-sex couples to have sex or to get married. But in Dobbs, the court said, actually, we're using a new test. The test we're going to use says it has to be that the right was deeply rooted in history and tradition, defined very explicitly. So we're going to look back over the last 100, 200, even more hundreds of years into the past and ask whether this right explicitly has been protected under the Constitution. And if not, it's not a right that's protected. And so abortion failed on that ground. Justice Alito said, hey, let's look back in the 19th century. Was abortion explicitly protected as a right under the Constitution? No. Well, Roe was wrongly decided then, and we're going to correct that mistake by moving it out of protection now. 
That's a really helpful explanation. I mean, the way I talk to my students about it, or I've been talking in the press about it is basically, you know, there's this word liberty. It's in the due process clause, and we have to figure out what it means. There are unenumerated rights, rights that are not written down. And we know liberty protects something. And what the court said in Dobbs is, yeah, but I don't see the right to privacy. I don't see the right to abortion written down. So it's not in the text. So what do we do next? We look exactly, as you said, at our nation's deeply rooted traditions and history. And I frankly think you can use that test to cherry pick which rights you decide to protect or not. And you said something so important, which is you talked about the cases leading up to Dobbs, right? The protection of marriage. Maybe you want to marry somebody of the same sex. Maybe you want to marry a partner of a different race. The right to use contraception and the right to engage in same-sex sex. And so I think it begs the next question, which is, are all of those rights now in peril, or do some of those cases rely on slightly different reasoning? Well, I will say this test that Justice Alito has now said is the law for determining which liberty rights are protected absolutely renders all of these other rights vulnerable. Because this test says you define the right very specifically, and then you ask if that right has been protected throughout American history and is deeply rooted in our traditions. Same-sex marriage became a right seven years ago. So I would not define that as deeply rooted in history and tradition if we're going to define it narrowly as the right of two people of the same sex to marry each other. I think there's some gaslighting going on on the right right now where a number of conservatives I have seen in the media and in politics saying, oh no, those rights are all safe. It's just fear mongering. It's just hysteria. That is not true. This new doctrinal test absolutely renders those rights vulnerable. In fact, if that had been the test that was applied in the same-sex marriage case, that case would have come out a different way. And so I absolutely do think we're now in a regime where we don't know what this court is going to choose to uphold or not. Just because this test renders all those rights vulnerable doesn't mean the Supreme Court will necessarily choose to strike them down the way it struck the abortion right in Dobbs, but it means there's a lot of subjectivity and the court has a lot of leeway. It can find ways to differentiate those cases. The opinion in Dobbs gestured toward maybe the fact that there's a fetus involved in the abortion context renders it different than the LGBT rights cases. Maybe the court suggested, I think very unconvincingly, that people rely on the right to same-sex sex or the right to same-sex marriage. They have a lot more reliance interest on those than they ever did in abortion. So there are doctrinal ways to differentiate the cases. I think it just shows how subjective and political this court is that they have now embraced this test where they can basically choose what they want to do. And we have little guidance about how these cases will come out in the future. Well, yeah, that, that's my instinct too, which is when the opinion leaked, I thought, okay, they're going to have to beef up that section where Justice Alito says, don't worry, even though we just created this new test for when we recognize rights that aren't written in the Constitution, and even though if you follow this rationale to its logical conclusion, you don't even have to go three steps, you just go one step, 
it threatens all of these rights. Don't worry because abortion is different. And I thought, oh, he's going to beef up that part of the opinion. And I just really didn't see it. I just wasn't convinced that he proved that abortion is different as a legal matter. Now, practically speaking, obviously obtaining an abortion is different from getting married. But one question I think some people are asking is, what about the decision in Obergefell, for instance, the same-sex marriage case, or Loving versus Virginia, the case that says that you can't have a state law that bans interracial marriage? Didn't those cases rely not just on the word liberty and the due process clause, but also a little bit on this concept of equality in the equal protection clause? Does that make them any safer at all? It does. It does. Um, Those opinions were hybrid opinions. They said they're important liberties uh, to do with marriage, but there's also equality of these groups that are involved, equality of um, non-white people, the equality of non-straight people are implicated in these bans. And that's part of the reason we're overturning these state laws that ban interracial marriage or ban same-sex marriage. And so you're absolutely right that once you kick one leg out of the stool, you know, we don't have liberty anymore uh, to protect those rights. The court still could say, yeah, but there's an equality basis for protecting same-sex marriage, protecting interracial marriage. In fact, I think if an interracial marriage case were to come before the court, uh, which seems to me unlikely, but if it did, I, I feel pretty certain that the court would say loving was justified on equality grounds. We still believe it's unconstitutional to discriminate on the basis of race, and they would uphold loving v. Virginia on that basis. I think the Obergefell same-sex marriage question is a little shakier because a lot of these justices haven't really committed to LGBT equality in the same way that they've committed to racial equality. So we would have to see how strongly they would endorse an LGBT equality ground. But you're absolutely right that that is another constitutional ground to protect rights. And the only other thing I would say is now there's a lot of argument in the abortion space that actually there's a sex equality component to these decisions. And even though the liberty that Roe protected is now gone, there's room, just like there are in these other contexts, to argue that there's some real equality concerns when states issue these bans. And that's something that I just finished teaching this line of cases with my students, and they kind of couldn't imagine. I know that I'm sure you teach the case as well. It deals with an insurance program that basically cuts out insurance benefits for women based on pregnancy disabilities. And the court decides this isn't an equality case because it creates a classification between people who are pregnant and people who are not, not between men and women. And so I know we're getting a little deeper into the weeds than sometimes we normally do on the podcast, but do you think that this might come back, that actually we do now view abortion through a different lens, through an equality lens, as opposed to a freedom liberty lens. Yeah, I'm glad you asked the question because I'm writing about this right now. I'm really interested in it. I think a lot of litigators in the space are interested in it. And Justice Alito was very dismissive. He had a one paragraph in his opinion Mm -hmm. where he cited a lot of really old cases saying discrimination against pregnant women is not sex discrimination. 
because not all women are pregnant. It was very, very weak reasoning, even in the early 1970s. And it was treated as laughable at that time. And that reasoning has been superseded in American constitutional law in a number of cases where the court has recognized that discrimination against pregnant women can constitute sex discrimination. And so I think there's going to be a lot of activity in building up claims around the way in which these laws reinforce traditional gender roles, push women back into subservient and conventional uh, motherhood. If you look at the legislative debates over some of these laws in the states, you will see legislators trafficking pretty heavily in gender stereotypes. So that is an area that um, is ripe for exploration. I think people will be building equality arguments going forward. I'd love to talk to you more about this and have you back after that piece is done. And I I could keep going on this line of cases, but I think people want to know what does this mean for me next? So let's start with what are the next big legal battles? And specifically, I want to hit two big buckets that I've been thinking about a lot. The first is this kind of vertical fight that we're going to have potentially between the federal government and states when it comes to abortion pills. And then the second is this kind of horizontal argument that we could have state to state based on the ability to travel. So if we could start first, I know you've been talking about this with abortion pills. We know that more than half of women who obtain abortions in this country do in fact use abortion pills. We know that the FDA changed the regulations and now you don't need an in-person appointment in order to obtain abortion pills. And we also know that states have or are trying to and planning to ban the prescription and use of abortion pills within their boundaries. So I know this brings up a lot of issues particularly dealing with supremacy, whether or not there's a real conflict here between the federal law and the state law. Could you walk us through where you think this particular battle is and where it might be going? Yeah. And I'll just preface this part of the discussion by saying one of the most ironic things in the recent Dobbs decision was that the court said, you know, Roe and protections for abortion have plunged us into chaos and legal fighting, and they've proven unworkable because these questions Mm -hmm. keep coming up to the court and Roe did not settle the question. Dobbs is going to settle the question. Well, each state can do what it wants and we'll have a peaceful, harmonious America going forward where Alabama can do what it wants and Massachusetts can do what it wants. And we'll get out of this era where we're at each other's throats about abortion. Nothing could be further from the truth than that statement. We are now plunged into a thousand and one difficult, underdeveloped, unexplored constitutional questions. And you mentioned several of them. So one of the questions has to do with the relationship between the state and the federal government, and specifically about the FDA, which has approved the use of medication abortion. It has studied it and studied it, has been one of the most investigative medications, and for a long time now has said it is a very safe and effective medication. Its complication rate is somewhere in the range of Tylenol. It's one of the safest medications out there. Up to 10 weeks, the FDA says you can use this. Now, some states are saying and have been saying, medication abortion is actually dangerous. They've been saying this based on no scientific evidence, and they've been banning it and restricting it on those grounds. So one question is, are all of those state regulations preempted by the federal government and the FDA's determination that actually this medication is very safe? 
So we established the FDA to make that kind of determination. It has made that kind of determination. And the attorney general and many people who study this area of law have said it is a problem when states try to pass restrictions that countermand or contradict the federal ruling on the safety of medication abortion. So I think there's some real bite to the federal preemption argument when we're talking about states that have put quote unquote or supposedly medical bans on medication abortion that aren't justified by science. I think there's a good argument that the federal determination that this is safe preempts those supposedly contrary medical determinations. Here's the question. What if a state just bans medication abortion because it doesn't like medication abortion? You know, it could even concede that it's safe, but it says we don't, it's immoral. It kills a person. We don't want it. It's a more untested and bold claim to argue that the FDA's approval of medication abortion actually also entails that it be available everywhere to mm-hmm. everyone. That's that's quite a viable argument. You know, maybe what the FDA's approval process meant is not only that it's safe and efficacious, but that Americans should have access to it. And if you understand the FDA's determination that way, then all the state bans on medication abortion would be preempted. This is all going to be tested in court. I 100% agree. This idea that somehow now we're out of the realm of litigating abortion rights and reproductive rights is just so laughable because we wouldn't have had these conversations before. And and I absolutely think it looks like obstacle preemption to me. And it'll be fascinating to see what happens and how the FDA's rules are read against rules by a state. And we know how states have really broad police powers to say, yes and no to activities within their boundaries. And I think that brings us to the next thing that I had said that I wanted to talk about, which is I said states have broad powers within their boundaries. Now, a lot of listeners have heard that some states are trying to punish women for leaving the state to go to a neighboring state to obtain an abortion. And some blue states are responding to that in a variety of different ways, not just providing more resources for women and abortion providers, but also like Connecticut may try and do and say, we're not going to cooperate at all with anybody who tries to punish you. And we may even provide an avenue for you to counter sue. Now, could you tell us, legally speaking, can a state do this? Can a state say, we're going to punish things that you do outside of our boundaries? If I had the answer to that, you know, we don't know is the answer. These these questions have not been fully litigated. This area of the law is underdeveloped. You know, it's pretty clear that states' criminal jurisdiction extends to providers and patients in their state, resident in their state, taking actions in their state. But the question of how much a state can extend its criminal law extraterritorially trying to reach into other states for activities that take place there, potentially even go after doctors or people who help patients in other states, is really an undecided question of law. And that's just going to have to be fought out in the courts. I mean, if we're reading tea leaves, one thing that got said in Dobbs is Justice Kavanaugh weighed in, in his concurring opinion, to say, you know, he said, oh, what about a person who leaves a state to go to another state where abortion is legal and obtains an abortion there? He said, I actually think that's a simple constitutional question. There is a constitutional right to travel 
which, by the way, is not explicitly articulated in the Constitution like abortion, but he recognizes there's a constitutional right to travel. And he says, I think that would stop a state, at least in some circumstances, from trying to prevent people from leaving. It doesn't even answer the way the court would come out, and it certainly doesn't answer all of the very complicated questions about states that try to civilly or criminally reach across borders and punish behavior that's legal in other states. I do think if people return to their states or if providers, say in California, travel to states where abortion is illegal, they could be in trouble. And there's not much California can do to protect residents of Missouri who leave Missouri, get an abortion in California and come back to Missouri. California may not be able to do much to protect them. What happens if Missouri tries to reach out into California? We are really going to have to have a lot of legal development and we will see a lot of law about this if, as we all suspect, states try to do this. Right. And I did have this moment where, you know, Justice Kavanaugh is saying, don't worry, the right to travel is protected by the Constitution. And I just want to start screaming, but it's not written down. And so now, we, you know, don't we need to subject it to the Dobbs test? But of course, I just said that to myself silently. Now, I think those are some of, as far as I can see, the really big battles that, as you said, the law needs to be developed. We don't have clear answers yet. And I'm hoping that as we're winding down our discussion, we could talk about some of the other proposed solutions, because I think people are desperate to know, can anything be done? We're now living in a world in which our rights are so heavily dependent on which state we're living in. And people understandably on you know a certain side of this debate are looking to the federal government. Are there other things that you think we should be thinking about. I know one of the proposals is providing abortions on federal land. I know that you can talk us through why that's not such a quick fix or abortions on Native American reservations or even abortions on ships that are basically docked right off of the coast. Are there other things that we should be thinking about and or would you like to talk to us about why those aren't the quick fixes that I think some people want them to be. Sure. This really is a kind of generation-long battle to regain these rights. It's not going to happen this fall. And one of the reasons is all of the possibilities you mentioned have some drawbacks. And so the federal lands analysis, I'll try to give you a quick picture of that. So immediately one thing people started to say is, okay, well, what if you just the federal government could lease land to providers Mm -hmm. and then states wouldn't be able to prosecute or stop what's going on on that land because it's federal land. So first I want to say it's very complicated, the question of when state criminal law can reach into federal land and exactly how free federal land would be from state law enforcement. That itself is a complicated question. But I think one reason the Biden administration is not jumping to do this is the people who would provide abortions on federal land, help people get abortions on federal land, and get abortions on federal land would then proceed into the state that surrounds that federal land. And once they do that, they're probably going to be subjected to a whole host of state bans and restrictions. So it's probably not an optimal solution. Anyway, the federal government seems to be holding back because it doesn't seem like it's really a get out of jail free card. 
and they're not going to be able to accomplish what people hope they might be able to do. I think a better, potentially more unexplored, and I think more promising area is the mail and the ships. And, you know, there are international organizations that have long been sending medication abortion into countries with bans. They hadn't typically been operating in the United States because we had reproductive freedom. We have now joined the list of countries that doesn't, so they may start operating in the United States. There's a suggestion from Meg Autry at UCSF, more than a suggestion, a kind of plan in the works, to park a ship in the Gulf of Mexico to help people down there who need care. There are going to be complicated jurisdictional questions involving you know, maritime law and, and the law of, <laughs> of what goes on on the waters. And there is a question about how much states can interfere with the mail and what that will look like if people in reproductive freedom states send pills into states where abortion is banned. And I think it's a little bit of a Wild West type situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, so this will happen. It's already happening. Pills are making their way into states. I worry that the most vulnerable people, as has always been, the most vulnerable people are going to get tangled up in law enforcement. They will be the ones hauled before court. They will be the ones to be made examples of. They will suffer. You know, it's not a magic bullet when you're dealing with state laws that make something illegal and you do something illegal, you're vulnerable. So we will have to see how all of that plays out. But there's no quick fix or easy solution, I would say. I think that is important for people to realize that this is a decision based on the Supreme Court's reading of the Constitution, and we can't just snap our fingers. And I think the last thing you touched on is probably the place where we're going to have to end the conversation, which is who this affects the most. And I know that you've also thought a lot about this, but it's worth reminding everybody, who's the typical person in America who gets an abortion and who will this decision in Dobbs most deeply affect? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the most heart-wrenching parts of this whole thing, which is that 75% of the people who obtain abortions in this country are poor or low income. Most of them are already parents. These are people who are in extremely vulnerable situations who make well-considered decisions that this isn't right for their families, this isn't right for their children, they don't have stable housing or stable food. I mean, the most anti-abortion, restrictive of abortion states are also the states with the least social safety networks. They haven't taken the Medicaid expansion. They don't provide prenatal care and postnatal care. They don't provide nutrition and housing support. They don't provide child care. There are places where it is relatively difficult to raise children, especially if you are poor, because they don't support children and they don't support fetal life in any other way than closing down clinics. And these are the people who are disproportionately people of color, who are rural people, who are poor people, who are not going to be able to as easily hop on a plane and get to California, who are trying to make decisions to protect their families, their lives, and their other children, who are going to be caught in the maw of this new decision and who are going to suffer and who are really the people that I think about every day when I work on this and and um, and that we all think about when we want to work on turning this around for our country. It's really that the most vulnerable people are the ones who will suffer. 
I love talking to you about the legal doctrine. I'm glad that we emphasize that at the end, that obviously this is one of those legal issues that has huge, huge practical consequences for many people. And I want to direct our listeners that you can find the Williams Institute on Twitter at Williams Policy. You can find the Center on Reproductive Health Law and Policy at UCLA Repro Policy. You can find me across all of the socials at Levinson Jessica. Professor Carrie Franklin, I so enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. We want to thank all of our listeners again. Please continue to rate, review, subscribe. We'll continue to bring these conversations to you and we wish you all a good rest of the day. Thank you.